This is an ABC podcast. This is like a treasure chest, isn't it? It is it? a it's treasure full chest. To the brim. Absolutely. With all you sorts know, of things. Yeah, yeah. Just unpack some of these because they're wrapped up in tissue paper. When Penny Bristol-Jones inherited an old trunk full of family records and keepsakes, little did she know the rich wartime history it contained. In amongst the bounty was a collection of diaries and letters written by Penny's great-grandmother, Edie Digby, during the First World War, while her husband and two sons were away at the front. Hello, I'm Kirsty Melville. And this is the History Listen. To mark Anzac Day this year, producer Phoebe Hartley brings us the story of the Great War from a different perspective, that of a wife and mother left at home. This is Edie's War. August 10, 1915. Through every word spoken as we stood on the clifftop yesterday, Part of my mind was always on my youngest son, Gerald. We stared intently across the ocean as, slowly but surely, a vessel took firm shape through the shimmering air. We dared not take our eyes off it. I prayed we would be able to see them as we each thought, though never said the words aloud that this may be the last glimpse we have of our beloved and precious boys. This is such a dreadful time for mothers everywhere. Uh, my name is Penny Bristol Jones and I live in Brisbane. One day my mother arrived at my place. She dragged me outside and down to the car and there was this really battered ancient trunk. And you open up and inside it's holding this wonderful collection of letters. And these are the letters that my great-grandmother Edie Digby wrote to her um, son, my grandfather, um, Gerald Digby, during the First World War. So they start in 1915 and they go through to 1919. Many of them are in these beautiful grey envelopes with this deep royal purple lining in them. They're written in black ink. They hold an amazing story of the life of a woman in a way that um, people often didn't write about in those days, really. So they're very, very intimate in lots of places and wonderfully revealing. Yes, it's me you have there in that old box, my dear. My heart poured out on paper. Writing letters to my men was my salvation during the longest and loneliest time of my life. Of course, this isn't really me. I died before you were born. I wanted this story to be told. I wanted it to get out into the public forum. So I started transcribing them. And so I compiled all of the letters into a chronological journal format. I was very happy with the results. Well, tell them a bit about me, my girl, and about my beloved boys. Start with my full name. Edith Vasey Digby was born Edith Vasey McKnight. She was born in Liverpool in England. That's correct. 
She came out here to Australia in, with her family in 1881 when she was 10 um, and they moved to Sydney. Edie met Everard when she was 15. Everard Digby. My dear Everard, he was much older than me. He wrote love poems for me, so romantic. Everard and Edith had, t- had two sons. My eldest boy, John Lloyd Digby, and my baby, Gerald Digby. Gerald was also known as Jerry. My grandfather was Jerry. We used to call him Pop. <laughs> he was a lovely Pop. All three of Edie's men, her husband and both sons, left for the war between 1914 and 1915 and were away for the duration of the war. And that left Edie alone for the first time in her life. October 27, 1915. At long last, the waiting is over. More than two months since Gerald left, I have received my first letter from Egypt. His descriptions of Cairo were wonderfully amusing, especially his account of the expensive drinks. It made me long to set sail and join him there. He will be 21 soon, a man in the eyes of the world, and should be celebrating with his family who love him so dearly. It is dreadful to be sending boys so young and wet behind the ears off to fight in a war. My heart is torn in three directions now. We are all so cruelly separated. A husband and two sons at war. Surely that's enough for one family. Writing was enormously important to Edie. First and foremost, I guess, because it was the only link that she had to to her men. She'd sit there writing and hear the ships going off to war down there. Oh, dear. (laughs) Ships, oh, God. Why does it it make you emotional? I guess it makes me emotional because I'm a mother, you know. And that story that, um, of her being left alone and then having to endure all all those years of anticipation and um, fear and loneliness and all those, those things and, you know, war is such an appalling thing. And now I have a son and he has two sons and the thought of them being in that position is just, oh, appalling. Where's my hanky? <laughs> there is a land where summer skies are gleaming with a thousand dyes I'm Bruce Skates and I'm a professor of history at the Australian National University. Edie's really living at a, at a remarkable time in Australia's history. Um, throughout the late 19th century, we'd been witnessing what we call um, a social experiment. Uh, Australia was a social laboratory for the world. And part of that involved um, a steady improvement, I think, in the status of women and an opening of new opportunities for women. Women had achieved the vote in Australia. Women had made a claim on citizenship, but they based that claim very much through the lens of what we call domestic feminism. So the ideal was that women would use their vote to enhance women's status and power within society, but within traditional roles, so as mothers, as carers, as the helpmates of men. The entire time the men were away, Edie did patriotic work of all sorts. She learned to um, spin. She made 
all sorts of items for sale for Red Cross stalls. And she made, she made up parcels for the three men as often as she could. November 2, 1915. I do so love to work for the Red Cross, but I never want to see another plum pudding again. We packed over 2,000 of them alone, and then there were the billies to be filled. There will no doubt be more soldiers to send comforts to after the recruitment marches. I think that this is a whole um, hitherto unrecognised sector of the economy, this this huge sector of unpaid labour. The, the figures are very, very rubbery, but, you know, out of a population of five million or so, almost a million people are involved in some kind of voluntary labour. You have hundreds of societies being set up, and these societies have an astonishing range of activities. So... They are, of course, providing um, support for the men as they're as they're leaving for war, providing uh, hundreds of lunches and meals a day uh, across the cities of Australia. But moreover, they're assembling what we call comforts for troops uh, serving overseas, and these are products of immense physical labour. In that, obviously, to to knit those socks or to bake those cakes, that's a huge physical labour. But it's also an emotional labour as well, and women invest their energy into those kind of pursuits. I'm sending Gerald a mouth organ in his next parcel. Oh, in the parcels, she put um, tins of food, all sorts of things from peas to cheese, razor blades, shirts. She made sheepskin vests. As well as strawberry jam, tinned fruit, cigarettes. Cigarettes went in every parcel, large quantities of cigarettes. Chocolate and some cool singlets. Yeah, they were, they were the comfort parcels. That's what they called them. Those, those are the original needles that were in there. I've not taken them. One of her major pastimes was doing beautiful craftwork, embroidery, tapestries, all sorts of things like that. As far as I can gather, she'd completely given up all craftwork except knitting socks. And she could knit a pair of socks fairly quickly, five, five and a half hours or something she used to take to knit a pair of socks. So she must have knitted hundreds and hundreds of pairs of socks over the duration of the war. The sheer number of socks we sent is staggering. We think that around 135,000 pairs of socks were sent through the official medium. Um, of course, a, a common affliction for the men in the trenches was trench foot. Uh, the need to keep feet warm and the need to keep them dry was imperative. So it is, in fact, a, a critical part of the war effort. And moreover, women didn't always knit alone. They often knitted in the companion of other women. And as they knitted those socks, I think they felt a kind of fellowship of purpose, a camaraderie if you like, with their fellow war workers. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. Probably the, the greatest trial for Australian women during the war was a sense of, of distance and powerlessness. So the war is so, so far away, you hear so very little about what's going on. You long for some kind of emotional connection to your loved ones serving overseas. And of course, in Eddie's case, this is a way of symbolically reuniting herself with her family. She's not just knitting socks, she's actually forming a kind of fragile bridge between um, the front on one hand and the home front on the other. So it's a tremendously important labour. Eddie was seen as a, a model war wife, really, so much so that um, an article quite a lengthy article was written about her in the in the newspaper. The Sunday Times 
July the 25th, 1915. Mrs. Everard Digby, wife of Major Digby of the 7th Battalion of the Bedfordshires, is one of the noble, unselfish women who have responded to the demands of the Great War with a courage born of a keen sense of duty and has sent her menfolk forth, not counting the sacrifice or cost, while she keeps watch and wait in her cottage home in North Sydney. Between whiles, Mrs Digby does much to assist recruiting and in setting an example to mothers and wives by her cheerful yielding of her best to the services of the Empire. November 7, 1915. The whole thing seems like a horrible nightmare. Sometimes I wonder how I can bear it. The boys' old school has issued a roll of honour. The names of the killed are far too many. God pity mothers everywhere. I must go now and get something to eat. How I wish my soldiers were having it with me. I'd like to give them all a good feed, such as a sirloin steak grilled with a poached or fried egg or fried fish and chips. You know, there were lots and lots of women who were doing their part for the king and country, because that's all they could do, was the least and the most they could do, really. Provide them with parcels and work very, very hard to try and make their lives a bit better, all the while not knowing how long their lives would be and what danger they were in. Good afternoon, everybody. So another way that we've brought this story to life is through performance. Uh, this is a storytelling event. My name's Maureen Hartley. And I'm Claire Larman. Together we are Violet and Rose Productions. <laughs> well, the stories we tell are mainly about women, the social history of women. We were particularly interested in Edie's story because there was nothing that we could find in our research about the women who were at home keeping the home fires burning and how they managed during the First World War financially and socially and mentally. As I write, I hear the usual greeting. Penny Bristol-Jones is an old friend. When she collated the family history online um, on a website, she asked me to read it, which I did, and I thought it was just beautiful. So Claire and I decided it would be the basis of our next project, and it has been a, a joy to perform it. As we were reading the, the diary, it formed this beautiful full picture of life at home. And the more we got into reading all that, the more transported we were to her life. Stuart Millard Peter Graham, heard age 25. Calling, Harry Rex George Coley, age 22. There's at one point a, a list that we give of the names of the people, just the ones that Edie knew personally who had died. And it's an incredibly long list. Charles Percy. And I think it's very important to remind people that these were mostly very young boys, often 18, 20 year old boys who were killed. Lest we forget. Oh, it's my boy and your boy when marching past that day. No, our hearts were breaking. We could not bid them stay. November 29, 1915. It is early morning and the sun not yet up, but I cannot sleep. I have had a great shock. Two days ago, I received a call telling me of Gerald's cable that he and his pal Colin are leaving Egypt for the front. God protect them. I immediately came down with a gastric attack and have been confined to bed since. So Colin Bull 
was um, a very good friend of my grandfather, Jerry. They both joined up to the 12th Light Horse. Over time, Edie and, and Colin's mother, Annie Bull, developed this really lovely relationship. And it was through the boys going off together and they, you know, their, their focus obviously was, you know, the survival of their sons. All Annie and I want is for our boys to stay together. And what happened to Colin? Um, OK, I'll take a deep breath now. <laughs> the Battle of Beersheba uh, um, occurred, which was the fourth light horse and the twelfth combined who rode across the desert like mad things and there were the Turkish trenches. And now I think there, were ver- there was a very small casualty, comparatively small casualty list but of the Allies, but one of them was Colin and the story is that he was shot out of his saddle. So, yeah, that was the end of his life. And Pop was really, um, you can imagine how upset he was. And Edie was very concerned about Jerry as well and how it was affecting him. And, of course, Annie Ball was, yeah, just absolutely devastated. So Edie spent quite a bit of time with her, trying to help her through that time, which was... A lovely thing to do and what, you know, what women did for each other in those times. They were really vital in each other's lives. Oh, so horrible. You know, you put yourself in that position and, and um, oh, God, I just, I just can't imagine what it must have been like. You know, to, 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 and to die in such a violent way. Oh, awful. Mm, fighting someone else's bloody war. October 29, 1916. I am sorry to say that it looks as though Australia has said no to conscription. Our new motto should be led by the nose. I feel sick over it. All single men between 23 and 35 were called to enlist three or four weeks ago. The applications for exemptions show there must be a good number of shirkers around. Edith was very involved in the conscription campaign. Well, of course, there are are two major conscription referenda, one in October 1916 and then a second one towards the end of 1917. In both cases, the government's proposal is is narrowly defeated. But what's very clear is that the conscription debate divides our country in a way that it's probably never been divided before. Women are on both sides of that debate. And when they advocate conscription, of course, they do so on behalf of their men. There's a sense that their families have been abandoned by the so-called shirkers that aren't going to war. So there's a sense that too much is being asked of you. And in her case, I think, this support for conscription is driven by the notion that we should share the burden equally. December 11, 1916. It's cruel, all this waste of life. Why don't the men who made the war fight it out for themselves and not ask us to make such huge sacrifices of blood? It's all wrong, whatever way you look at it. 
I noticed a kind of slippage uh, in in her letters. Um, at first, you know, there, there seems to be uh, unreserved um, support for conscription. But as she goes on, I mean, there is that message there of we have given so much, we have already given so much, it seems wrong. And there's a sympathy that's expressed for all the mothers who are losing boys. Later in the war, Edie accompanied a young man to the enlistment office and stopped him from enlisting. She did that because she saw what women were going through um, and the suffering of families. So that created those sort of contradictions for, for her. January 15, 1970. I have just finished making a big batch of hot scones. How I wish they were all here to eat them with me. March 26, 1970. Will this cursed war never end? July 22, 1917. Spring ought to be very good this year after the rain. I have been planting a lot of young seedlings for when they all come home. May 28, 1917. It worries me when Gerald writes he has not heard from me for some time. September 28, 1918. There isn't a minute in the day when I don't miss my men. I feel 20 years older since they went away. Surely the war can't go on for much longer. November 12, 1918. The war is over. I can scarcely believe it is true. Sydney is going mad. Edie waited out the war in, in a way that we, we know was filled with anxiety and, and so on for her, but she was one of the lucky ones because she got all her boys back. Some of her friends lost two and three boys over there. They came home. Yeah, and she was, she, um, she was able to hug them and, um, you know, she was, <laughs> she was able to cook, a, um, what did she want to cook for them? A sirloin steak with, <laughs> with eggs on top or fish and chips. <laughs> yes, I was lucky, but the war took its toll on us all. My men returned but they had changed. Whenever I came home, he basically went to bed. Um, she talks about him not wanting to go out. It has not been easy since he has been back. She sounds quite um, frustrated and sometimes even angry with him. He seems dissatisfied with everything. He stays at home. I remember a line in, uh, in Eddie's testimony where she talks about wanting Everard to actually come home. He's physically there, but, but emotionally, psychologically, he's not. He's not really engaging with her in the way that he used to. Sometimes I am at my wit's end wondering when my old husband will return. And I think the reality of it is that these men come back holiday. different. I get bad fits of depression and somehow I don't think I will ever feel the same again. There's also, I think, an evaporation, if I can put it that way, of that huge emotional energy that, that women have focused on the war effort, on, on keeping things together in the absence of men. I think uh, in some cases there's active resentment when women are sidelined. They've been um, exploited, if you like, by the promoters of the war as, a, as an asset, a resource. We need you to fight this battle. And yet suddenly when there's no longer the battle to fight, what becomes of all that energy? What becomes of all that labour? What purpose is then left in their lives? And it's often difficult for them to return to the life they've left behind because that world has so abruptly changed. January 20, 1919. 
I have practically given up Red Cross work since Everard came back, but do what I can at home. So Everard came home in 1919, but he had heart problems and he died in 1922. John came home and he went off and took up practice as a doctor in regional New South Wales and Jerry he moved to the New South Wales Tablelands of Glen Innes. So from 1922 um, she was living alone again. February 26, 1919. The weather has been very hot and trying. The garden is an ash heap. It's heartbreaking after all one's hard work. She died, um, my mother tells the story, they found her, she'd fallen, had a heart attack and died between the bed and the window. And so when they looked in, they couldn't actually see her on the floor. And she died, she died in her gardening clothes. And we just think that's so fitting because all the way through her letters during the war, she always talks about the garden and, and the, the lovely flowers. And oh dear, here I go again. <laughs> Yeah, so it was, she died doing what she loved best. But you couldn't ask for more, really, could you? When I went to school, I believed that what I learned as history was the truth. But I think ha having something like this, the other side, this is, this is a personal story that relates to so many women. Well, yes, this is the cost of war. This is what it meant to our family and our community. And we must never sanitise or sentimentalise that kind of experience because when we do that, we do a great injustice to that generation and we also do an injustice to ourselves. We, we have a very immature, petty, chauvinistic nationalism that, that over, overlooks the real cost of war to, a, to human society. One of the things that's been wonderful for me is that I feel like I've developed some sort of relationship with her, even, even though I never knew her physically, but I feel that I know her from, from reading these letters. What would you say, Penny, if you could meet Edie? If you could, oh, if you could have God. met her? What would I say? <laughs> well, I would tell her that I, I feel so proud of her and I would thank her for leaving so much wonderful history behind. You know, it's enabled her story and her to live on in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Just wonderful, so I'd probably tell her that as well. <laughs> I wish I could have met you, my dear girl. My blood pumps in your veins. I think we would have enjoyed one another's company very much. October 10. 1922. I often think of all those boys who lost their lives and cannot believe how I was blessed with the return of all three of my soldiers. I pray there will never be another time like it, so mothers all over the world can live without the fear of their sons being killed in some terrible war. And it's my boy and your boy, it's someone's boy or brother. Matters little who's boy if you are one boy.
Edie's War was produced by Phoebe Hartley, with sound engineer Melissa May, and the supervising producer was Michelle Rayner. I'm Kirsty Melville, and I do hope you can join me next time for the History Listen. See you then. Cause there are boys and your boys you gave and you may take But oh, remember mothers for mothers gentle say You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.